Prepping Podcast. We're helping everyday people become prepared for whatever emergencies come our way. Where gear is good, but knowledge is better, because the more you know, the less you have to carry. We're your hosts, Mark and Krista Lawley. Let me jump in here real quick and explain a mistake I make in this particular podcast, and it's just because I was doing more than one thing at a time, and I was speaking when I wasn't thinking, and that is when we're talking about generators and connecting the extension cords to them and putting various devices on those that we need to be careful how many amps that we are pulling as we are using extension cords. And I mistakenly used the words watts when I meant to say amps. So when you get to that, just realize in the context it will make sense. But I did use the word watts several times when I meant to use the word amps. And my apologies for that. Now let's get to the podcast. Hi, everybody. Crystal Lawley here with Practical Prepping Podcast. We are so glad that you have tuned in today. We are on part two of a two-part episode series about what happens when the power goes out. Now, in episode one, we covered the sanitation, which is your bathroom situation, and your light situation. On episode two, we want to jump into how to stay warm in the cold weather setting when the power goes out. And then the final element would be our food and water, which we combine that into one. So we welcome you to episode two. We welcome Mark back with us. Say hi, Mark. Hi, Mark. (laughs) Anyway, so smarty. (laughs) And we appreciate our sponsors for this episode, Jim Curtis Knives. Jim is a custom knife maker. And ProLine Designs, builders of websites and website hosting. All right, let's get into when the power goes out. And as you talked about a moment ago, there's really four major concerns there. Sanitation and light, which we covered in the last episode, and heat and food and water. So let's begin with heat. Yes, for a lot of the listeners, we are coming into the cooler weather. We woke up this morning in Alabama with temps in the 40s, which was pretty pleasant, I got to say. Like it. I like to be a little bit more on the cool side because I like bundling up, but I like to have that cool air when I sleep especially, and I have warm, snuggly blankets to be sleeping in. We also realize we have some listeners that may be living in some areas of our country or even all over the world that are already dealing with snowfall, icing, freezing, and sub-zero. Here it is, not even November, and some of those folks are already into full-on winter weather. And I think the Tourist Bureau would want us to tell you that it doesn't get that cold here in Alabama, and we would welcome you to move here. (laughs) And so... Uh, just load up and come on, and you don't have to shovel snow here either. Well, not usually. Now, I've lived in Alabama back in the 1960s, in the early 60s. We had a 17-inch snowfall in Huntsville. I'll never forget it. But how much did you have to shovel? Well, I didn't shovel any of it. Daddy did. I was a small kid, but I remember it because that very winter snowstorm One of my brothers was born, and it was January of 1962, so if that brother is listening, he'll know who he is. 
And I remember having to slag out through this, you know, to me, waist-high snow. Of course, I was four years old. Yes, I will never forget that snow because not only did it snow, it lasted for days and days and days. And that's the unusual part about an Alabama snow. Usually, if it snows in Alabama, just have another cup of coffee and it's gone by 10 o'clock. Oh, yes. It usually melts on impact, you know. (laughs) Uh, You folks that are already dealing with snow, uh, not to make you jealous, but we don't even own a snow shovel. No, we don't really need We would invite you to load up and move to Alabama. All right, let's get back to our topic, heat. If it gets to where it's in the 30s at night, we're going to be running some heat. We will be doing that. As long as the power is on. Mm-hmm. Now, if the power is off, we're still going to be running some heat, but how are we going to do that? We happen to own what's known as a Big Buddy, which is a Mr. Heater brand. It is an indoor safe rated propane-powered heater, and we have used this device very successfully at my daughter's home when we stay with her we have a basement guest quarters but there is not any heating in that basement but we can tell you from experience that our mr heater big buddy can do the job Mm -hmm. we even had to turn it down oh yes it was so efficient this particular one runs off of two one pound bottles one goes into each side and they're covered And the heater actually uses, if you're running it on high, it uses about one pound per hour. So what we found is we'll turn it on high to start with, give it 15 minutes or so to warm the area up, and then we'll turn it down to medium or low. You can connect this with an optional hose to the barbecue grill tanks. With a 20-pound tank. With a 20-pound tank. Which is more efficient if you want it running overnight. Well, we can even run in high. We can get two and a half days out of one of those tanks as well, and that's running it like 10 hours at a time. Yes, and we wish we had had this heater with us this past May when we were camping in the Talladega National Forest. We had no idea that it was going to get to be 40 to 42 degrees camping. It was different because we were in a tent So we needed some kind of a heater Mm -hmm. and didn't have it. So we regretted not having that. We learned our lesson. Okay, so an auxiliary heater. And for those of you that depend on an electric heater for supplemental heat, you might want to rethink that or either have some type of power backup system to be able to run that heat as well. Here's something that a lot of folks have, us included, even though we don't use it in the house at this time. And that is a fireplace. Yeah, good old wood-burning fireplace. Good old wood-burning fireplace. But you do have to have some wood on hand. Yes, and we'll find, too, that a lot of cases, unless the home is specifically built with the fireplace chimney openings running from floor to floor, in some respects, a fireplace is not the most efficient way to heat. It's great for the room that it's in, but it may not necessarily travel around throughout the house. So you may have to have some other types of alternative heating going on, even if you're using your fireplace. Right. But if you're using that fireplace and it's only heating that one room, you can have everyone move into that room and stay warm. We're talking about power outage situations when it's cold and staying warm. Now, you can also get some firewood at the grocery store, at least around here. A lot of the grocery stores and different quick marts carry bundles of firewood already split, ready to burn, and it's all about 20 inches long or so. 
And so a few of those bundles would be good to have on hand. You can also use those fire logs. The the You just put it in there. It's in the paper tube, and you light the tube, and it lights the log. And right. I think the brand name is Duraflame. Duraflame. Right. And yeah. you can find those at pretty much any large merchandising store, a Walmart, a any, grocery stores, department stores, hardware stores have them. And, of course, your home improvement stores have them as well. One thing that you need to be sure is that your chimney is in good order. And that's the reason that we have not been using ours is because we don't know. And it's just a matter of one of us making a phone call, finding somebody to come out that does that type of thing and inspect ours and tell us whether or not it's safe to use or what needs to be done to make it safe. Right. When we moved into this house, this fireplace had not been in use for a long, long time. And we don't want to take any chances that the flues and the chimney and all the things that have to do with that, we don't want to take any chances that they might not be in proper working order because that can, one, that could actually put carbon monoxide into your house. Or two, you could set your chimney on fire. Yes, your chimney can actually burn. And that's not good either. So we're we're going to do a fireplace check. I saw you looking at me when you were saying about somebody needs to make a call. I saw you looking at me. So I guess I'll be making a call. Well, one of us needs to. Hey, listen, I just want to tell you about a couple of books that you need to add to your collection and give as gifts. I highly encourage that you go to Amazon and look up this title, Making Contact During Emergencies. This is information that may save your life or the life of someone you care about. If injured, lost, or found in a disaster or another type of emergency. This book was written by Mark and Krista Lolly. I'm Krista, and Mark is my husband. Book number two that we wrote that we're especially proud of and has gotten a lot of buzz is entitled Practical Prepping for Everyday People. This is a common sense guide on preparing for life's emergencies. And when we say practical prepping, we mean the type of emergencies you're going to find yourself in day in and day out. Car emergencies, dead batteries, flat tires, storm damage, the roof has gotten blown off, you find that you have no power, no electricity, no devices are working. These kinds of things are happening to somebody somewhere every single day. And we were astonished when we did a little research to find that a vast majority of people found themselves woefully unprepared for one or more of these types of emergencies. And particularly after this COVID year that we've experienced, I think a whole lot more of us are paying closer attention to things like grocery store supply chains, the ability to be able to buy gas, the ability to be able to move freely about, or what's going to happen if we do have to stay home for three weeks solid. Practical Prepping for Everyday People by Mark and Krista Lolly, also making contact during emergencies. Go to Amazon, look these up, add these to your collection. We sure appreciate it. Another thing that you can do, and actually, Krista likes it a little cooler in the house than I do. Yeah, I'm at that age. And (laughs) maybe mine is thinner blood. I think so, where you you don't carry as much insulation as I do. Okay, so I put on more clothing. Sometimes I wear extra socks, and I could wear a jacket and even gloves in the house if I had to, if we were yeah. in a power outage situation. If you're, you know, your, ho- your house may drop down into the 30s or 40s as far as the temperature. Layers of clothing is a more efficient way to heat your body than one layer of a heavy coat or something like that. People that do a lot of skiing are actually dressed in 
thin layers. Some of these people that are out skiing, it looks like they're just wearing a simple little skin-tight suit when, in fact, there's three or four layers in there, and they're quite toasty and very warm because of those layers. Absolutely. Plus, the exertion that they're going through creates more body heat, Mm -hmm. and those layers hold that body heat. Now, this winter, with heating costs expected to rise in this inflationary rate of some 54% is what the heating costs are expected to rise this winter, Mm -hmm. we may be wearing more clothes than we might initially. That's true. We might actually have to take some steps to lower our heating costs because like everybody else, you know, we we have only a certain amount of income. and We've just got to be more judicious with how we spend it on utilities. You can call it fixed income. It's not what a lot of people think of fixed income, but it's fixed in that we get what we get, and that's all we get. Yeah, that's pretty much there is a There's a limit to how much we get. If we're going to have to spend 54% more on heating costs this winter, then we're going to have to do one of two things. We're either going to have to cut something somewhere else out of the budget or we're going to have to put on some more clothes and cut some of the heating bill, Mm -hmm. which will probably be the way that we go. You can also use hand warmers and foot warmers. And you're talking about those... Warm hands. Yeah, yeah. those little packets that you can They're almost oxygen absorbers that you open it up and when it... It It activates. It it. activates when it contacts the air, and they'll get warm. They're good to put in a pocket, put your pocket in there last year me being outside sometimes i put in the very cold i put one down inside each glove smart and that helped keep my hands warm Mm -hmm. they make them to go in your boots as well and fit down under your toes and they're really not that uncomfortable i've I've done that while while hunting i know a lot of folks go to a football game like Mm -hmm. on a friday night and it can be really chilly and windy or a lot of folks are going to be going to parades i know the huntsville parade is going to be at night and uh, i might like to go and i might have to put hand warmers and foot warmers in if it's going to be really chilly that night uh, i may want some of those in my clothing you know while i'm standing there watching the parade at night but you could do that in your home if the power's out and you have to have some other way to have heat. Sure enough. Now, the way Grandma did it was she just piled more blankets on. Oh, yes. Blankets you, and quilts. My grandmother, too. She handmade quilts, and there was three or four quilts on the bed every winter when we would go to visit. And I'm glad they were there because she had a fireplace, and she had not a very efficient way to heat the upstairs where a bunch of us kids would sleep up there. And Oh, yes, we had to cocoon up there really quite often to stay warm. We loved it. So you can pile those blankets on and stay warm. You can also get in a sleeping bag. That's true. I never really thought about that till you and I were talking about that once we were actually using some sleeping bags camping that we were musing out loud that, hey, in a power-down situation in the middle of winter, these sleeping bags piled up, you know, onto the bed with blankets on them or whatever would be really, really toasty warm, especially if you're snowed in and can't go anywhere else, you know. Now, sleeping bags are rated by temperature, and a lot of these that you pick up at the big box store, they're probably a 50-degree temperature, but you can get them for 20-degree, which at one time I had a 20-degree temperature-rated bag, and that thing would roast you. Uh I mean, it really would, but... Uh If you were sleeping outside in a tent, and I usually slept in a camper with it, but if you're sleeping outside, 
some of these guys that are going mountain climbing and such, they may have a bag that's rated below zero. Now, the one thing about that is the lower the rating, the higher the cost. Right. There's, there's more padding and insulation. Well, in don't expect bags. to pay the 1995 that you can get a 50-degree bag at the big box store. Don't expect to pay 1995 and get a 20-degree bag. That That's going to be over 100 bucks. But if you're doing a lot of sleeping outside, probably going to be worth it to have one. But you can also take that and put it in the bed, like you mentioned. You can put it on the bed, get in it, and cover up the sleeping bag with blankets and quilt. And that will warm you up a lot more. And these things are available in several sizes. You can get single, and that's what I'd always had was a single until we got the one to go in our tent. And it's a double. Right. It can be reconfigured. To the, it, they can actually be zipped together to make a double, or they can be unzipped and individually zipped to make two singles, which is pretty cost-effective. But the good thing about the double is that you're actually sharing body heat. Yeah. <laughs> I like the way she said that. All right. Uh, where else are we? i tell you what. While I recover from this one, let's take a break and hear something about our sponsors. Mark is a bit of a knife nut. He loves a good knife, and that's the very reason that I purchased for him a handcrafted Jim Curtis knife. Because a custom knife seems to have its own personality. It's unlike any of those generic knives you get at a big box store. Mark has a Jim Curtis knife that just screams, look at me, handle me, use me. It is made of Alabama Damascus steel, which holds a razor sharp edge and it is adorned with a beautiful red white and blue micarta handle i had it built for him special for a christmas gift last year and he proudly carries it as an off-duty edc knife you can have your jim curtis knife built to your design specifications or you can select one that he's already designed and built ready to be purchased Whichever you choose, it will come with a lifetime guarantee, lifetime sharpening, and two band-aids. Yes, it's just that sharp. Check out Jim Curtis Knives on Facebook at facebook.com slash Knives, or drop him an email at j.curtis7mm at yahoo.com. Both of these links are in our show notes, and we'll also put them on the Practical Prepping website. Back in the day, if you had a business, you put an ad in the phone book and maybe the newspaper. When a prospective customer wanted what you did or sold, they would look you up in the yellow pages and give you a call on the landline. Well, that's not so anymore. In fact, if customers are under the age of 30, they may not even know what a phone book is. Today, everyone goes to the Internet looking for information before they buy. Even those of us who grew up with the phone book are going to the Internet before making buying decisions. In the 1990s and early 2000s, it was enough to have a website that told people your name, what you did, where you were, and your phone number. They looked you up and gave you a call. Websites were relatively easy to build, and they were all pretty basic. But they were websites, and we had a presence. Not so today. Prospective customers want to go to your website, find your product or service, read about it, compare it to others, then order it and pay for it online. 
If your business doesn't have a high-quality, very professional website, I can guarantee that your business is losing sales that you could otherwise be making. You need a professional website designer and builder, and you need good, reliable hosting. Proline Designs built the website for our latest book, Practical Prepping for Everyday People. It's a beautiful site, and it has sold a lot of books. Proline Designs is now building our rebranded Practical Prepping website, which will include a blog, forum, articles, books, and items to purchase, as well as our podcasts. Proline Designs also hosts our websites at lower cost than any other comparable company we found. That's value. And their reliability? Well, we have never experienced a website outage. That's reliability. Proline Designs. All right, we welcome you back to the podcast. Now we're going to jump into the final element of when the power goes out, and that's discussing our food and water situation. We want to jump right in to the cold and frozen food storage. Now, you will need some kind of a backup power system if you're going to be running a refrigerator and or a freezer for several days and perhaps weeks. Yeah, how long can the refrigerator and freezer go without power? Well, you know, I've actually heard this, and of course it's going to vary, but I say the average generally. With with most refrigerators, if you're opening and closing it very, very minimally, with zero power going to it, you're probably looking at about two, two and a half days for the refrigerator part. The freezers, because they're much deeper and lower temperature, they may be good for five, maybe seven days, if you don't open it, but at some point, you know, without power, depending on the season of the year, of course, you're, you just really can't rely on the safety of your food after a certain point. So if you're not running these large appliances with some sort of a generator, it's going to be cooking time. So we're pretty safe if we don't take action. If it goes out, we don't necessarily have to take action till tomorrow. Right, a day or two for the refrigerator at the very most, and if you can get some power to go to that and not lose everything, you should be fine. Now, if you're in the middle of a deep, deep winter, and you know your refrigerator is normally about 38 degrees inside, and it's 28 degrees outside, you may let Mother Nature do a little refrigerating for you. Did that in 1993. We put the food we did not want to freeze inside a cooler and set it outside on the porch. Mm-hmm. And in a shady spot, so yeah. it wouldn't even get it, sun. It stayed on the porch. And then for the food we wanted to stay frozen, we put into, actually, I think we used cardboard boxes because I didn't have the number of coolers there to be able to do that. And we weren't talking chest freezer. We were talking about the freezer that's on top of the refrigerator. And we put that in boxes and put it in the back of my pickup truck and covered it up with snow. Smart. So Mother Nature was your refrigerator. Mother Nature was my refrigerator and my freezer. And the pickup truck kept small animals from being able to get to it. And probably, and we're talking a big four-wheel drive, and at the time, it was where any animal that was anywhere near our neighborhood was not going to be able to get up into that truck. Yeah, so, you'd have to, you have to think about mm-hmm. those contingencies. Now, if you're going to use some kind of backup system, that has to be in place ahead of time. Right. You know, when your emergency happens, there are already going to be a number of customers that are going to be lining up at the big box stores to try to buy the generators that sold out yesterday. Mm-hmm. 
You can use solar charging systems, and these, most of them, use a series of deep cycle batteries and inverters, and they're recharged by solar. They are slower. If you put a heavy load on it, you may not be able to maintain it for a long time. That's where you need to really do the math on that and figure out how long you can use it. And that's basically a battery bank with an inverter. And the length of time that you can use it, as we talked about in the last episode, in being able to use a battery and an inverter, really depends on the size of the battery, the type of battery that you have there as well. Now, this is a case where your car battery is probably not going to run your refrigerator and or your freezer for any extended period of time. It's just not designed for that, and it's not big enough. Let's talk about generators for a moment. Well, the first one is the one we want that we're not going to get for a while, and that's the whole house. Right. That's just the type that's going to be able to run pretty much everything that's already running, with maybe just a very few exceptions. But primarily, that is in an interest to get a refrigerator, a freezer, a television, the cell phones, the wire Wi-Fi routers, the lights, you know, your basic type things. If you can unplug something and not need it during an emergency situation, by all means do so and allow your generator to just operate what is completely necessary. Now, if you have the whole house automatic generator, you can run everything. That's your whole house. You can run your heating system, whatever. But those are expensive to set up, which is why we don't have one at this point. But now, there's some things you can do with your roll-around generator. Do not bring it in the house. No, these uh, are not indoor rated Let's just say that to begin with. Do not bring a gasoline engine in the house. Now, these solar generators, you can do that, but you cannot bring a gasoline-operated generator inside the house and run it because it will put out carbon monoxide, and carbon monoxide will kill you. There's a couple of ways that you can do this. One, you can roll it nearby. In our case, it would be here on the patio. We would chain that to the rails so nobody could come in and get our generator at some point. And we would run two extension cords into the house, and we would put power strips on the end of those two extension cords. And the reason I say two is there'd be two different circuits on there, both at 20 amp. We would plug the refrigerator into one and the freezer into one, and then we could run an extension cord off of one of those for other smaller items that we wanted to run. But keeping in mind, let's do not put more than 20 amps on this particular circuit. Now, they do make 20 amp circuits. They do have 30 amp circuits, and they have 50 amp circuits that you can feed into your whole house. And that's one of the things that we plan to do with our generator is to have the electrician come because we're going to backfeed this thing, feed it into the power box through a plug, plug it into the 30 or 50 amp plug on the generator and throw the transfer switch so that it cuts it off from the power grid. And that is a safety concern, really, for the linemen. Exactly. For others. Now, you can backfeed this, and one of the ways that we could do it is to bring it in, have a double mail extension cord, and plug it into a particular circuit, and that would feed back into the house. 
But like you said, if you do that, you must throw that main breaker into the off position so that you're protecting other people because you're putting power back onto those lines as well. And particularly if they're in an emergency situation and the power's out, the utility company is going to have dispatched their workers to go up there on those cherry-picking bucket trucks and They don't need any surprises coming from people's generators, Mm -hmm. so definitely be safe about that. So don't be that person because it is dangerous to others. Now, depending on the load that you're going to run, 7,500-watt generators should be enough to run most of the things that you want to use in your house. But I do know some folks that use 3,500 watts and also use smaller ones at their house, but they have to be really careful with the load that's on that. And that 3,500 may not run everything like heat or air conditioner. Right. You have to determine what's going to be the most important things that you want. Do you want the whole ball of wax operating or are you going to be satisfied? And will it be perfectly fine for you to choose just your refrigerator and freezer to be working but you can live without, say, your electric lights and your television for mm-hmm. a while. So, you Or you to... can rotate those things. You exactly. Can, you can run for the refrigerator and the freezer several hours, and then you can disconnect those, and you can run something else. Just rotate your power usage. Now, let's talk about running extension cords for a moment. Yes, you can run up to the amperage of your outlets, your cords, and your power strips. As we mentioned a minute ago, those will be in the 20-amp circuit or it might be 30, or it might be 50. And you can't plug a 20, 25-amp extension cord into a 50-amp service and expect to run it without causing a fire. Amperage flowing through electrical wires creates heat. Ah. And if you overload that circuit, you can start burning things up, and it either burns up the cords going on to the appliance, or it burns up the extension cord, Let me just make it clear here. You don't want to be plugging in an extension cord that is rated for a lower amount into a higher amperage outlet. Yeah, because the heat, the the amperage overload will feed back into that lower cord, and that's going to create an excess buildup of heat, and that can spark a fire. If you start trying to run 30 amps through a 20-amp cord, it's going to get hot. That's caused many a house fire over the years with people running standard household extension cords under rugs and carpets, and they get stepped on and begins to break down. And then people back then, you know, you might have one outlet per room. Right. And so people were running. It reminds me of the outlet on the Christmas story when the dad goes to plug the lamp in (laughs) and he's all the time blowing fuses. It looks like an octopus of cords under there. Yeah. He has to replace those fuses because he's overloading those circuits. Right. And so that applies to generators and it de- uh, it applies to the extension cords, also applies to those power strips that you're talking about. And if you look at it, just turn that power strip over, and it'll tell you how many. A lot of them are 15 amp or 20 amp. Right. And so you just need to be careful with how much you plug into those at one time. 
Now, something else that I learned when we were looking at generators, for example, when a refrigerator compressor kicks on, there's a surge there that takes place that's natural. I mean, it's built that way. So you have to have an emergency generator that can handle the startup kick-on surge that takes place with some of these larger appliances. Well, one of those smart guys back many, many years ago came up with one of those theories, and it is that a body at rest tends to stay at rest until some other force is taken upon it. You have pumps, you have fans, you have things inside those compressors and inside those refrigerators and freezers that have to get up to speed. And it's actually called starting, starting watts, watts and, and running, running watts. watts. You'll even see this printed on the generator box. Right, and even on the generator. Uh-huh. But what that does, and the running watts will always be lower or almost always be lower than the starting watts, But that refrigerator might pull 20 watts to start up, or that freezer might pull 20 watts to start up and only run five while it's running. So that's where you have to be careful. If your refrigerator and freezer are on the same circuit, they would run on the same circuit, on a 20-amp circuit. But if one of them decides to kick on and the other one's already running, now you're over the, the limit. And if you happen to start both of them at the same time, you're way over that limit. So that's why I mentioned a while ago of if you have two outlets on there, run two extension cords because they're separate circuits. That refrigerator is going to use three to five amps while it's running, but it's going to be significantly more when it actually kicks on. Now, we've got a list here of some things, and we're not going to talk about all of these, but just to give you an idea of what you're looking at and the things you may try to push together on the same circuit. Now, you run a whole bunch of light bulbs because they're going to run a half of an amp to 1.5 amps while they're running. Now, window unit, an AC unit, and a lot of folks down in the hurricane areas, they keep a window unit that they can install if the heat's off and it's 95 degrees and the humidity's horrible. They can put that window unit in and run that, and that's going to pull 5 to 10 amps. Now, a space heater, a 1,600-watt space heater is going to pull 7 to 13 a refrigerator, 5 to 8, 20 cubic foot freezer, 4 to 5, but it's going to start up at 10 to 15. That's significantly more. Exactly. Yeah. So this is where you have to plan it. Now, a must-have uh, coffee maker. Oh, there's no there's no disputing that. <laughs> the coffee ma- I will not even run a hair dryer which some of those can be 1850 watts. Oh yeah. You know, we can we can have wet hair but we've got to have that coffee maker. Mhm. We can build, we can actually use our campfire with our camp well, we coffee. We can use our camp. We have two other backup methods, and then if we have to, we can go to boiling it or mm-hmm. boiling water and pouring it over. But we would use a French press right there. That would be a great way mm-hmm. to do that. But that coffee maker is going fi- to pull five to eight amps. Right. So. Right point of that being, what else are you going to be able to run with it, or what are you going to have to disconnect in order to run that coffee maker? Now, a television, HDTV, digital TV is going to pull anywhere from one and a half to four amps. These are just some of the things that you have to figure in. 
And if you've got that circuit pretty well loaded and you start to plug in a charger for small electronics, just keep in mind that's going to add another half amp to one and a half amps. So just keep that in mind. And the way you can figure out, like you mentioned, the hairdryer, if it's 1800 watt, divide that by 110 and that gives you the number of amps. Gotcha. So just off the top of my head, we're talking around 15 amps. So you're not going to be able to plug that hairdryer in with your coffee maker while it's making coffee or you're getting ready to blow a circuit. In fact, sometimes that happens in people's homes right now Mm -hmm. uh, where you can have somebody's in every room of the house running something and they go to plug in a hairdryer or a computer or what have you microwave even and then suddenly things start popping because the the circuits are just overloaded there is a limit people don't realize this a lot of times there is a limit to the electricity that can be run at any given time in your house under normal circumstances and in emergency circumstances you've really got to know your math on that so that's where you need to put pen to paper and do the work and figure out the amps and learn something about that science Okay, now let's talk about when you don't have that backup power. Begin to use that refrigerated food first. You may need to begin to cook the food that's in the refrigerator, cook the food that's in the freezer, or find another way to preserve it. You can can vegetables and meats. You can preserve meats with salt, smoke it, make jerky out of it. But if you can't save it, give it away. If you can't save what's in your freezer, cook it up and give it to a neighbor. They will certainly appreciate that. You help them out sometime down the road when you need help. They may be there for you. Now, let's talk about that cooking. Hopefully, you'll have a gas stove. We don't. If you have a gas stove, you can operate the eyes by turning it on and lighting it with a match. Yes, even if you have an electronic ignition, which I had many, many years ago when I lived in North Carolina, when the electricity is not available, yes, like I said, you can just open that gas circuit and you can hand light it. Be careful. Make sure it's very, very low. Don't don't try to light it when it's high because it'll spook you. But well, it'll we, burn the hair off your hand. Right. I've we done actually, that several times. We heated the couple of rooms using the gas stove. But do be very careful. You do want to vent some of your air that gas is burning up because you do need to have some fresh air coming in as well. All right. Talk about some backup options. We talked about this not too long ago that we were, th- we were just out loud thinking if we didn't have any power to where we could not use our stove or our oven, how would we cook our food? So my first thought was, well, we have a grill. We actually have a grill and a smoker. So we have a gas grill. We have propane bottles so we can cook on the grill. We have, Which, by the way, that has one of those piezo or piezo igniters on it that actually generates when you push it. Mm-hmm. You don't have to have electricity to it. But ours has gone out because the grill is... Oh, it's 20 plus years old. It's got some years on it. Mm -hmm. So we light that with either a very long match or one of those fire sticks. It's very efficient that way. So yes, we can cook, bake... We can do anything that we could possibly do on a stovetop or an oven. We can use the grill. We have cast iron cookware that can be used on a grill for long periods of time. For example, baking bread or cakes or biscuits or anything like that. We have Dutch ovens that we can put as a slow cook, making stew. We have a smoker. We can smoke meats. We can smoke cheeses. 
So we have that type of devices that we can use for cooking. We also have a fire pit, a portable fire pit. We can transfer our grill grates over to the fire pit, create a fire in the pit, and then cook over that if we have to. So we actually have wood stored away. We have gas, propane, natural gas, well, propane bottles stored away. And we have tinder, all, all kinds of tinder, something to build a fire with. So... We can go old school on it. We can heat some food. Oh, we also have a turkey fryer. Just remembered, we've got the big pot. We can do a turkey fryer. We can cook meats in there. We can cook stews in there. And you can use it just as a burner and use your cast iron over it. Absolutely. So we we do have some good prep in and that way. And one that you did not mention here is our camp stove. It's, oh, the camp stove. Yeah, because it's the newest one. It's a little 2i, yeah. runs off of a one-pound propane bottle. Yes, we And did. we honestly don't know how long you can cook on it because we've not run it dry yet. Not really, no. We've cooked, uh, we've cooked some breakfast on there. It, it worked very efficiently. We have definitely made coffee on our camp coffee percolator. It was the best coffee I've ever had in my life was that camp coffee. So, yes, I had forgotten about the camp stove because that was our newest acquisition and we've only used it on that one trip so far. You can also keep some charcoal. We don't have a charcoal grill we have that propane, but we do keep a couple of bags of charcoal. We keep them where they stay dry and where nothing can chew into them. And we could use that charcoal in our fire pit, or we could make a little fire ring out of bricks and build a charcoal fire there and put the grates on top of that. We have some loose brick here that we could prop up the grill with that. Mm -hmm. So that's just another option. And just all kinds of options that we don't want to have food and not have a way to cook it. Let's just put it like that. Absolutely. So think through how you would prepare food if you were in a, I'll say grid down situation, which is really what a power loss is. But now let's caution you against using any grills, outdoor heaters, anything inside the house. Yes, don't even th- don't even pull it inside the the mudroom or even a garage, thinking that that's because that's still considered indoors. That is not safe to do. Sadly, there are folks who have paid for that mistake with their life. Because the the carbon monoxide is a silent killer. It's not something you immediately detect. It'll get you before you can do anything about it. So don't take that chance. Make sure you're using indoor safe things indoors and the rest of them are outside. And the limit for me would be our patio is walled on two sides. Two sides are open two sides are closed, okay, brick on two sides, and then the other two sides, I have no problem using it there. You have plenty of airflow that you're not going to have a problem. That would work on a carport that's open with two sides. If you had to cook in a carport that's only one side open, I would put it very near the opening, and I'm thinking here like in a major rain, you're still trying to cook, but be aware that carbon monoxide may get pushed into the back of that carport if it's only open on one side. Folks, be very, very careful there, and another thing, if you're in that category that has one open side, I would put a carbon monoxide detector in that particular area. Good call. Now, what's some options for powering other devices? 
Okay, we want our cell phones to work. We want our smartphones to work. We want those things, our gaming devices to work. But with no power to charge them up, what are you going to do? Well, you've got those power banks, those devices that you can charge up ahead of time that hold the charging so you can put your cord in and then charge your phone. There are several kinds. The most common are charged up from an electrical outlet, just like you are using now. There are other types of charging banks that use solar power. Now, they take longer to charge up. So, again, being the practical preppers that we want to be, we want our solar chargers charging well before we need them because it simply takes them longer to charge and longer to recharge once you've used them up. Now, I had one of these one time that you put four AA batteries in, and that was a good one. And I think that was our first alternate charging system, other than taking it to the car and plugging it in to charge up. Mm-hmm. I found this one that took four AA batteries, and you could just plug into it, and you could charge your cell phone. Well, the cell phones at that time didn't require the amount of power to, to power them today. And you could charge it up several times with that. You can also go back to our deep cycle or car batteries with an inverter and plug your wall plug into that as well. You can also, now just let me let me go back right there a second. Got into this situation at the hunting club one time in the camper. The battery that we normally, we, we kept two batteries in the camper under the kitchen table. That's where we hooked everything up and that's where our inverter hooked up. And I would connect my inverter to the, one of those batteries and plug my CPAP into the inverter. This particular weekend, somebody, like neither one of us, bothered to charge up the batteries for the camper. So we got down there and both batteries were too low to run my inverter. Now I've got my battery in my truck. So rather than go out and take my battery out of my truck, I opened the hood of my truck, connected the inverter to my truck battery, plugged an extension cord into the inverter and ran the extension cord inside. So if you're looking at being able to charge devices, run a CPAP, things like that, you may not have to take the battery out and bring it inside. You may be able to plug it up under the hood of the car and run an extension cord in. Is that making sense? That makes sense if you're on the same level. If you're in a 13-story building, that's not going to make sense. That's not going to work. But uh, you've got to be able to get that battery close to that window or door, wherever that. Yeah, I was parked going. 20 feet from the camper door right. and had a 50 foot extension cord, so but, that but was that, not a problem. But I just I threw that out. It, that can work for a lot of people. Exactly. It really could. And and there's some things that we've done in the past where we would use power tools, battery operated power tools, away from home. And we would go through quite several batteries while we were doing this particular task that we were doing. And so I would open the hood of the Jeep and I would connect the inverter to the battery and we would plug in the battery charger to the inverters. And while we're working, running one set of batteries down, we're charging up another set of batteries. Smart. So, you know, we did that for a couple of years of uh, while we were doing that task repeatedly. Now, here again, the deep cycle batteries can be used with an inverter, and one of my goals is to put a deep cycle battery for the ham radio system 
and put a little small battery maintainer, solar battery maintainer, outside the house to be able to charge that up. One of the guys at the hunting club did that with his battery, and he never had to take his battery home because we'd be down there for the weekend, gone for the week, back down there for the weekend. And his battery stayed charged up from that little small, um, I think this was a little Harbor Freight, $25 $25 solar charger that he was using to run that. It's a good investment. Okay. Now, back to something that we had mentioned in the last episode is be sure that you're keeping various sizes of batteries. We keep a pretty good stock of batteries. We were given one of these battery containers. It's red and has the plastic on both sides that you can flip the it over. Seen on o- TV. O- yeah. Open it. It's handy. And I like it. It'll hold like 90-something AA batteries, probably 50 AAAs, Cs, Ds, 9 volts, and even has a spot in there for button batteries. So we know where our batteries are now. Uh, We certainly appreciate that gift, and it costs quite a bit over a period of time to fill it up, but we don't worry about where the batteries are now. That stays in one place, and we just regularly go and get those. And we keep those in stock for every device that we use. Okay, anything else you want to add on food and water or on heat before we go to our quote of the week? Well, I think the quote of the week really was meaningful. Thomas Edison once said, Many of life's failures are from people who did not realize how close they were to success when they gave up. Mm -hmm. It's okay to fail. It's just not okay to give up. Exactly. Thanks again to our sponsors for this episode, ProLine Designs and Jim Curtis Knives, and we'll see you next time. We hope you've enjoyed the podcast today. Hopefully you've learned something, picked up a tip, or something we said may have triggered a thought that will help you in your prepping journey. If you haven't already, go ahead and click that subscribe button so you'll never miss an episode, and share it with your friends and family. And remember, stuff happens. Stay prepared.